is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates hobby talk like you never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. Well, all right, everybody, here we go yet again. It is Saturday night, September the 4th, 2021. My name is Jeremy Lee. Welcome to Sports Cards Live. I do want to thank last Saturday's guests. We had Gene McLeod from Arena Design. We had Shay Raman from Shay Wave Vlogs. I also want to thank this Tuesday special episode guest. We had Card Killer and we had Aaron Rich from Hobby Dons. Later tonight, after this episode, on After Hours, on the same channel, we are going to enjoy a true collector's perspective episode with Wade Boggs super collector, John Reichard. So stay tuned for that. Next Saturday's guest, we have Card Score founder, John, as well as on After Hours, Ryan Nolan from Breakout Cards joins again to talk about the card show scene that he is, you know, all of his antics. He is out and about, as you all know. I do want to let you guys know, I've got two pretty, uh, actually, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to hold off on those. We're going to do some shout outs first. Wait till more people pour in here. So we've got, I do want to shout out, as always, Big Three Sports on Instagram. They are on the ticker right now. Give them a follow. Great supporters of the channel and good friends of the show. I want to shout out the Summit Show. Make sure if you are in the Edmonton or the Western Canada region to come to the Summit Show in Edmonton, September 18th and 19th. It's going to be about 100 vendors, usually gets 2,000 or so people through the doors. Could hopefully be a lot more this time, seeing as where the hobby is at now. I'm going to be there. Come on down. I'll be set up, and um, it's going to be a great time. I want to shout out all the podcast listeners. As you know, I appreciate all of you. Hopefully, you can get to a live show one day soon if you haven't yet. And I want to shout out all the subscribers and the watchers, guys. You know, I appreciate all of you. We are now over 3,600. And uh, this feedback, support, encouragement has just been great. Really appreciate all of you, as always. All right. I do want to let everybody know that I have recently accepted a deal with Collectible, the fractional ownership company. I have What's going to be happening here, I want to let you all know, is that I will be hosting a new show on their channel the collectible YouTube channel called Collectible Live. First episode is tomorrow night. It's going to go at eight o'clock Eastern. And uh, I must say, I'm really excited about this. It was uh, extremely flattering for them to approach me and ask me to uh, to do this. So uh, yeah, we're going to start another show and it's going to be around 20 to 30 minutes long Sunday night. So definitely check that out, subscribe to their channel and uh, let's see what that ends up looking like. I also want to let you guys all know that did another sort of, made another agreement with Whatnot, the live streaming app. And they are now proud supporters of the Sports Cards Live channel. We're going to be doing some really cool collaborative things over the next while. So stay tuned for that uh, as well. So a couple couple of big announcements there that I'm pretty excited about. And I, I really want to thank everybody for, uh, you know, who's been with me from the beginning. We're, we're coming up on a year and a half here. And uh, if it wasn't for for the, you know, just all your feedback, encouragement, support all through, you know, all along this, this ride that we've had. Uh, I don't know if those things would have been possible. So I really want to thank everybody for that. All right. As always, as you know, your comments, your questions are in play. Don't be shy. We have a great guest tonight. He is a, I mean, he might not like me saying this, but I think he's a hobby legend. He started collecting cards as a kid in the 1980s. 
He owned a store for seven years, spent the last 17 years as a buyer for both Baseball Card Exchange and David Adams Card World, where he currently is. He's purchased over $30 million worth of sports cards in his career. His favorite team is the Dallas Cowboys. His favorite athlete is Dale Murphy, originally from Honolulu, Hawaii, currently hailing from Buffalo, New York. Let's bring him out. Reed Kasaoka, welcome to Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight, my friend? Uh, very good. And I would say that hobby legend implies that I'm old and I'm not that old. <laughs> you're you're not that old. I think I think we figured out the other day that I might even be a little bit older than you. So exactly. Um, so uh, but you know what? The reason I say that is because your picture has been in the Beckett magazine for years now, year a decade at least, it, it seems like to me. Um, you know, you were part of you as I just mentioned, you worked for Dave and Adams many years ago, like up until 2009. And then you went and you worked for Baseball Card Exchange and you were you were literally hopping around the country uh, month after month. And, you know, I, I've i known who you are for a very long time. And so to me, uh, you are. I mean, you're one of the most known, well-known buyers in the hall. And you may not be known by all the collectors out there, but you're certainly known within the industry. Um, so... Talk about that a little bit, if you can, before we get going. Just just like, you know, what's it like to see your picture in, in Beckett Magazine for every month for a decade? It's a little weird. I mean, it's it's flattering that people know me from the ads. That means that the money we're spending on them is is well worth it. Uh, it's definitely a way to get yourself out there. Self-promotion is a great thing. Uh, putting my face in there, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but uh, it gets me noticed. I, I always say that whatever kind of celebrity status I may have in the hobby, is that one week a year at the national where I walk around and, and everyone knows who I am. Uh, you know, I go to the bathroom and people want to talk to me. It's like, it's like I'm an athlete, you know, getting bugged at, at the urinal that they want to talk to you about something. Uh, so it's, it's a little, it's flattering. No, no, no doubt. Uh, but I enjoy what I do and I'm glad people want to follow along on my adventures. Yeah. It's, 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 I, I think it's really cool. And we're going to get into a little bit later just how it seems like you, you you may have what a lot of hobbyists might consider to be a dream job. You just get to go clean out collections, buy collections and make make deals all the time. But we're going to get into the the fundamentals of that and uh, some of the details shortly. Before we do, let's let's talk a bit about your history, though. I kind of ran through it quick, but like give us uh, your collecting background. What what when did you start collecting and what were you collecting? And tell us about that kind of how you your entry into the hobby. So I collected, uh, started in the mid eighties when I was in middle school, all my friends did, you know, the, the mid eighties is when cards really started to heat up. Um, by the time I got to high school, it kind of evolved into a business. You know, we, uh, my friends and I would go around and buy cards from our fellow classmates because, you know, when you get to high school, you want to use the money for your car or girls or whatever. So it's easy to find new uh, inventory on a regular basis. Um, so I did card shows all throughout high school whenever I had free time. Uh, and then that involved, it evolved into getting a job at a store. As luck would have it, you know, I, I pretty much cold called a guy opening up a second store uh, near my house. And I uh, went down there before he opened up, knocked on the door, uh, talked to him for a little bit, introduced myself, came with a one-page resume as, as good as a high school kid could have, and a recommendation from another card shop. And... Uh, he opened up, I think, on a Tuesday, right after Memorial Day. And that night, he called me up and told me they just they killed it that day. And uh, he wanted to know when I could start. And so the following week, I had a job for the summer. I was going to spend my summer going to grad parties and doing nothing. 
and I worked at the card shop all summer long. I learned how it was done. The perks was I got to sell some of my stuff at the store as well. And that carried me throughout all my college breaks. I always had a job there waiting for me. And then when I finished school, um, decided, even though I promised my parents I wouldn't, that I opened up my own card shop. And so uh, that pretty much took me into the mid-90s. And like you said earlier, I'm from Honolulu. And so my store is in Hawaii. And uh, it's still open. It's best of the best in sports cards. It's uh, in Pearl City. And uh, I ran that with my partner, Calvin, for seven years. And then I decided to make the big move to Buffalo. And so how, how did the, okay, so you made the big move to Buffalo, but there must be more to that because you made the big move to Buffalo to work at Dave and Adam's card world. Yeah. So I had known Dave and Adam for, for years prior to this. And uh, in 2004, we, we did a Pro Bowl show uh, separate from the, the NFL experience where we had a bunch of, of the players signing autographs. Um, and I just got burnt out of essentially dealing with the public, dealing with retail. Um, and so the day before the show, Adam and one of his coworkers came in, sit, said hi. They were, they were there for the Pro Bowl. And he told me that the guy who had the job before me at David Adams had quit. Uh, he went to work for Global uh, doing their pack grading and moved to California, nicer weather. Um, and so, you know, the next day the show happened, I just got crushed. And then I told myself, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to ask Adam for a job. And so a week later, sitting in Kauai in a hot tub, I think I was pretty drunk at the time too. And I said, Hey, Adam, I've decided I'm going to come work for you and take over your head buyer job. And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he was, he, he's like, tell me tomorrow when you're sober. <laughs> next day I repeated it. Uh, the following week we had an impromptu uh, interview, job interview in t-shirts and shorts and the lobby bar of the Hilton Hawaiian village. And then, um, you know, about a month later or so he said, all right, let's, let's make this work. I left the business to my partner and moved to Buffalo pretty much cold and decided this is what I was going to do. And, uh, you know, then it kind of just took off from there. So, I mean, talk a bit about, cause that, that position, uh, with Dave and Adams lasted you uh, for lasted for about six years until 2010. Yep. What was it? Tell us a bit about that. What that was like being the, you know, first of all, telling him that you were going to be his head buyer. That, that was bold. I, I like, I like that. Yeah. Uh, talk about, uh, you know, that job itself and what your role was and how you kind of went from owning your own store mm -hmm. to buying on behalf of another one. Well, back then, you know, buyer traveled around the country, um, but also did a lot of the shows because the show circuit was still pretty strong. In addition to the Chicago shows, the Philadelphia shows, and the Toronto shows, the TriStar was still doing shows at the time uh, all around the country. So you'd still be doing 15 shows a year with opportunities to buy at those shows as well, as well as you know try to fit some buying trips in, in, in the way. Also during that time, we, we started to do a lot of autograph signings. I mean, 2006, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of football product in 2006, and we're probably the reasons for it because you know, we signed Reggie Bush and Matt Liner and a bunch of other guys and just jammed all that 2006 product across the board with their autographs. Uh, you know, companies like Dharma's Playoff at the time and Tops and Upper Deck, <coughs> excuse me, couldn't make enough product. They just kept printing it because we kept getting them autographs, essentially. And so there was that aspect of it, doing signings with players. You know, that's always fun. And then, you know, it just kind of just took its course. I mean, it was it, it just kept growing and growing hit the recession in 08, there was a little uh, correction there, but then it got busy because in a, in a panic market like that recession, man, there are a lot of sellers. And so it kept me busy until 
uh, I went to baseball car exchange in 2010. So let's talk about that because I, I feel like I've known of you since you started a baseball card exchange and I've known Steve Hart, uh, the owner, you know, just from, a buying off him at the at the national now for several years and a little bit of mail order uh as well probably going back to 2007 or eight at the national um how, how and why did you make the transition from david adams over to baseball card exchange well the uh in 2009 the last year last full year at david adams uh adam and i just couldn't get along you know we're it, you know we'd worked together for years and we know each other before that and over that year it just got rough it became tough to work with him. Look, I wasn't, I'm not an easy person to, to, to have as an employee myself. I, I know that's how it is because I, I always keep pushing, I keep pushing. And so rather than try to work it out, Adam was like, you know what? Just don't want to deal with that. And I get it. Look, I know where I was wrong. Adam kind of knows where he was wrong. We actually talked about this a few weeks ago. We're at the national and kind of like I had said our little piece here. And so um, I found myself out of a job. I called. I, I slept on it one night. I called uh, Steve the next day and I called another company the same, the same day. And both of them offered me jobs on the spot. So I knew I was okay. And so, you know, after a few months of playing free agent, uh, I, I picked to work for Steve and uh, it, it worked out. I'd say it worked out fairly well considering, you know, how many people knew me before that and how many people got to know me over the, over the course of the years. Yeah, and I'd be one of those latter people my, myself. So what was the, you know, I kind of want to understand what did you what did you learn during your days at the early days at Dave and Adams that you kind of used it at Baseball Card Exchange uh, to, to be even better at your job than you were at Dave and Adams? Like, what, what did you carry over and improve upon, would you say? Well, I, I would be becoming a buyer right after becoming a, a card shop owner is a big transition. Because, you know, a card shop owner, you have to buy stuff and you have to play retail salesperson. But now my job was to walk into people's houses and size up a collection and figure out what to pay, what to do with it. And so over those you know, almost six years, I think I got pretty good at it. I, I got developed my own strategy. I developed my own way of doing things. And so when I got to Baseball Card Exchange, I now had this knowledge. And, you know, I had a pretty much free reign. You know, Steve didn't want to travel as much. He liked the fact that I would be doing the traveling for a lot of the buys and he let me kind of develop my own job description, essentially. And so one of the highlights for him, I'm sure, was that I would be out there trying to buy product rather than just sitting back in the office and waiting it to show up on our doorstep. And so that uh, got turned into, well, let's just promote these road trips, promote these buying trips, let's promote we're going to be in this area, the kind of things that we do. And anyone who saw our ads during those nine years knows that we didn't have a marketing team. We didn't have some specialists making flashy ads. Some of those ads are some of the ugliest ads I've ever seen in a major magazine. I mean, um, SMR for PSA, they took it upon themselves to make sure that they would make an ad look nice. But the ads in Beckett and even in Sportsbook's Digest, those are made on Microsoft Word. Uh, they weren't pretty, but they had good content because um, a lot of people remember some of those ads to this day. I, I get people tell me about it. I remember this ad. I remember this ad. And so I know the message got across, um, but what everyone knows me for is, you, is pretty much is I'm the guy who travels around the country just buying collections. And so that just got repeated over and over again to the point where like, well, it's really happening because I spend more time on the road than I do at home. 
to, to the point where I consider you a legend because of it. You know, I, I remember that's what I remember are those ads uh, just month after month. So, again, feel like I've known of you for at least 10 years now, which is which says something considering we just met for the first time in person at the National. And uh, and that was really nice. Bobby Burrell says that he's that you are pictured in his 2006 vintage hockey collector price guide even. So th there you go. That's uh, that's that's pretty cool too. I look, I look pretty young in that ad. I'm holding a bunch of money like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let's, let's now talk. So you did, you did nine years there at, at, with, with Steve at baseball card exchange, traveling the country. And then in 2019, let's ask the same question. Why and how did you leave baseball card exchange and go back to work uh, with Adam, who you, who previously you left because you guys weren't getting along anymore. And I can see how you wouldn't get along with that guy. I'm just kidding. But how, what, what brought you back over there? So with Steve, you know, as the years went by, you know, I think my performance went up about bigger deals, more profitable deals. And we're getting to the point where like I was making really good money and I wanted to, to take it to the next level with Steve. And like, look, we need to take some things off your plate. I don't know if you know this, but Steve does everything when it comes to his company. I mean, he's a sole proprietor or corporation, but he's a sole owner. And so he needs someone to help him do certain things. And it was just a hard transition for him. So, and part of it too, I think is, is his business kind of grew out of control in a good way, but to the point where it was just taxing him. And so I, I, pro I proposed an idea where we take some stuff off, the, off his plate, but naturally I wanted a, you know, a, a better compensation package. And Steve pretty much told me that he doesn't want to pay me anymore. And I get it. You know, you want to keep your expenses the way they are. And, you know, the business is already successful. Maybe he doesn't need me. And so, you know, I said, look, I'll, I'm probably going to go off on my own, you know, but I'm going to still work for you. We're, we'll figure out a way to do this, you know, amicably. But, you know, I'm going to make plans to leave. And I was planning to go off and, and do my own thing, which, you know, we can talk about more later. But I don't really want to do because I've already been my own boss. I like to make the money. I don't like to count the money. You know, I don't, the paperwork and all that stuff. So, you know, I got married in 2019. I had a housewarming party the following month. And I decided to invite Adam and his wife because, you know, we're back on better terms. And so uh, it was the first time I saw Adam to congratulate him that he bought out Dave and now is the sole owner of Dave and Adams. And I told him, oh, by the way, I'm going to go off and start my own company. And he's like, why do you want to do that? You know, it's like you could be like a free agent and just buy stuff for different dealers. I'm like, yeah, I know. But, you know, I want to make more money. And this is the way I think I can do it. Um, a week later, he invites me out to lunch sit down and was like, we want to hire you back. And you know, I thought it was funny. <laughs> he was serious. Um, and it kind of just went from there. You know, it was, it was pretty much how much do you want to come back? I gave him, I gave him an idea of what I wanted and they're like, we can make that work. It was probably the easiest job negotiation anyone's ever had to do. It, it's uh, it was, it was too good of an offer to come back. You know, I've been living in Buffalo the entire time. So it's not like I had to go anywhere. Um, and you know, I got, different things. Uh, Adam not having me there for nine years. I'd like to think that he missed what I could bring to the table that it was worth trying to try to get me back. And so I got more autonomy. I got pretty much free reign to do what I, what I want, what I like, because he knows that I'm going to do what I, what I can to make the company money and turn and make myself some decent money as well. And so this is where we are right now. 
Awesome. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to dig in deeper. Let's say hello to some of the people that have joined us in the chat. I want to say good evening to Troy. Always great to have you. Rocco is here. Loyal viewer. Rocco, great to have you again. PSA Slab Guy, thank you so much. Joseph lets us know the target is stalking Metal Universe Hockey. I can't wait to open some of that. Steve Sir, good evening to you. Lapper in the house, good evening. I like when we get these ones like this, uh, Reed. Tokyo repping in the house. Love reads, buys, non-sports boxes. Thank you, Tony, for joining. Pete Nays, hello. We got Tom Bullard. We got Steve Tingwall. We got Gary Hotch. First time listening to the show live. I mentioned earlier, I, I love when I have when someone who listens on podcast comes and watches the live. Because for me, Reed, it's 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 this is a it's a live show. It's it's about the visual and the audio, but the podcast listener base is it's way bigger than I ever imagined it would be. And so when I see someone who comes in and maybe you brought them out, that's awesome. So thanks to you too, but welcome to the show, Jerry. Really like that. Michael Ham is here as always. Michael, great to see you. Thank you, Pete. Congratulations on the new adventures. For everyone who's come in since I last announced, I'll let everybody know again that um, I've, I've, I've accepted a role, you could say, uh, with Collectible. This is Collectible, the, the fractional ownership uh, platform to host a new show on their YouTube channel called Collectible Live. It's going to it's gonna have a look and feel sort of like this, but with a few more bells and whistles. It's going to be Sunday nights. First episode's tomorrow. Very excited about it. I think it's really cool that they, uh, they were just so uh, flattering and um, professional about everything. And uh, I just can't say enough about these guys. So really excited to start this new show tomorrow. And also want to let everybody know, if you came in late, that whatnot the live streaming app whatnot is now a proud supporter of the channel and someone who i will be working collaboratively with and i'm looking forward to that so just want to let everybody know that so thank you troy on that very much uh oh baby says do you think i could send gene from marine designs a shack hotshot proof and get a die cut i don't know bobby good evening to you tom bullard from says buffalo represent we got, we got, oh, we got my guy, Joe Perot in the house. Loving it, loving it. Good evening, everybody. Overtime grading is here. We've got Dexflow in the house. Says, Reed, when are you coming back to Cali? We've texted a couple times on potential deals. You want to take that? Uh, the way it works is these days, because there's so many different leads, I'm like a couple months out all the time. Um, unless somebody blows me away at something great. Like I, I can't just drop whatever I'm doing and make it somewhere. So the best way to get me to come see you is to send me a list, take some pictures, quantify what you have, do what you can to entice me to want to come see you. And then I can put you on the schedule. You know, it, it, it doesn't work the other way around. It's not like, Hey, I'm going to be in California. Oh, by the way, I'm stopping your place because I don't know if it's going to take an hour. I don't know if it's going to take a day. I don't know how much money to bring. I mean, there's all these different things that, I know it doesn't seem like much, but they're all logistical issues because I don't drive around aimlessly throughout the country. I know it may seem like it at times, but there, there's a plan in place. There's a there's a schedule. There's an itinerary. Uh, I don't like making hotel reservations you know, an hour before I get there. I want to know where I'm going to be. And so if you want to sell something, entice me. Figure out how you're going to get me there, and then we can go from there. And, you know, a guy like Reed doesn't make those comments unless his time is limited. So uh, that, that's just, and does, Reed, does that speak to how much demand there is for people selling collections? And by that, I don't mean like selling ultra modern. I mean, is, is there a lot of demand for your time for uh, like 
let's say, estate sales and that sort of thing uh, at this current time in history? So whether it's intentional or otherwise, because I don't deal with new product and it's usually older product and the things I, I try to stick to are unopened uh, vintage cards and autograph memorabilia, because of where I advertise and the, the kind of people who are looking to sell their collection, they tend to be on the older side. I like to say that my target market is baby boomers. And essentially I'm taking their collections. Some of them haven't collected in decades and then turn around and selling it to the, the newer collectors or, or the, the people who make up, I guess the people watching this twenties, thirties and forties, fifties. Um, and so uh, the demand for me to come out there and see the collection is great because some of these people, they want to do something. They're, they're, they're pushed by mortality. They're pushed by downsizing. They're pushed by certain things. So I, I encounter motivated sellers. Now that doesn't mean they're going to give it away, but they have an agenda. They want to do something. If someone expects me to just come take a look at their collection and just think they're going to roll out of bed that morning and, and greet me at the door and say, yeah, have at it. It's not going to work. It's, it's got to be motivation on, on both ends. If you can take the time to quantify your collection, make a plan, I can take the time to look through it, talk about it, and make the effort to come to your place. You want these things organized too, don't you? It helps. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure. I pay extra for organization. There's no doubt. Yep. Well, it saves you time. Time is money. So that makes sense. We'll say good day to Global in the house, Frankie Gonzalez from Puerto Rico in the house. Good evening, Frankie. We got B. Roy. He says, and I love it. I love it when the chat read, they often uh, kind of usurp the questions that I have ready to go later, but you know, let's, let's get them involved. So uh, B. Roy says, is there a favorite buy of yours over the years? Yes. So everyone talks about the find, being able to find that mom and pop store that uh, used to sell cards back in the day, whether you're talking about the fifties or the seventies or eighties. And they, for some reason, used to stash all the leftover stuff in the back of, a, of the house or, or some unfortunate thing happened where like they were buying stuff for their kid and their kid passes away. And, and so all the cards that they had put aside for them never got touched. And then decades later, somebody finds them. Well, I have my own mom and pop store find. Uh, in 2005, I'm sitting in my office, I believe it was the, the fall. And the phone rings. It's like four o'clock on a Friday. And part of me didn't want to answer it. I answered the phone, talked to this, this lady. Her name is Kay. And she said she owned an IGA store, which for people who don't know what an IGA store is, it's essentially the supermarkets in small town America. And IGA stands for, I think, Independent Growers Association. So they pool their buying power so they can bring affordable groceries to um, the, the, the small towns across the country. So she saw an ad on a magazine in her magazine rack of mine. And she called and says, hey, I got this stuff buried behind our walk-in freezer. Uh, we're looking to sell it. I said, cool. Can you like make an inventory list? And she's like, we're working on it right now. And we'll, we'll fax one over to you when we can get it. Following week, it comes by on fax. And you know when you're looking at cases of cards, it's hard to describe because Tops doesn't exactly give a lot of information or even Fleur and Dyer's for that matter. It's just like numbers and codes and you got to decipher them. And so the list comes through and I, I'm starting to decipher some of the codes. I'm like, this is too good to be true. Well, I jetted down there. There's a small town in Illinois called Virginia, Illinois. It's about 30 minutes west of Springfield. This place is so far out of the way that my cell phone didn't work in 2005. <laughs> I had to use, <coughs> excuse me. I had to use the store phone to call back to the office. 
and it was a rotary phone. That was their store phone, 2005. So I bought all this unopened inventory behind the walk-in freezer. It filled up a 16-foot truck, and I paid short of $100,000, easily over a million dollars worth of stuff today. Well, now I made friends with Kay and the people who worked in the store, and so that every time, at least for the last, well, now it's been 16 years, every time I pass nearby, I'll call, I'll text them ahead of time, let them know I'm coming by. I'll, I'll walk into the store like I own the place, and the ladies who make all the baked goods make me like brownies and snacks and stuff to take with me on the road. And so a couple years after this, Kay says, hey, you know, I got all these cards that me and my three brothers used to collect in the 50s and 60s. It's like, all right, I got to see this. I was there for two weeks using all the daylight hours I could possibly do to sort through essentially 100,000 vintage cards. And when I say sort through, nothing was missing. All the stars are there. Stars, commons, card is a card is a card. They were all the same. The reason why it took me so long to sort through it all is because I promised Kay any set I could make, I would give to her. So if I could make a complete set, I would give it to her and then I would try to buy the rest. So I bought that entire deal. Once again, six-figure deal. And um, we got to know each other over those couple of weeks where like, I'm part of the family. Like she actually walked me to the bank and we went through all the safety deposit boxes that the family owned. And I'm looking at all the silver coins that used to come through the store over the years. She had a 52 mantle in there. She had a whole bunch of stuff. It was, it was crazy. Um, and then over the years, she sold the comics that they used to have. She sold that to my coworker, uh, Will, who does comics. Uh, and I, they'd find stuff here and there. And so unfortunately, Kay passed away a few years ago. Um, and so now the store had to been sold and they're still cleaning out stuff in the house. So finally, the last things that were taken out of the safe deposit box were all put together. Her friend Stephanie got everything in her house, set it all up. I knew the 52 mantle was going to be there, right? So I go over, I'm looking through the cards. Oh, here's the 52 mantle. Cool, man. I'm looking through some more cards. There's a second 52 mantle. Like, wow. I, I, where did this come from? Because I didn't see it in all the, all the safety, deposit, safety deposit boxes he had. As I move the second mantle, a third mantle falls out. Not even the sleeve, just raw. No, no holder, no nothing. It's 352 mantles. Anyone who wants to see a picture of that, scroll back to, what is that, 2020? Yeah. October 2020. Look in our Facebook page for Dave Mams, and you'll see the three raw mantles. And it's just, along with other stuff that they had there, unbelievable. And so uh, all over the, over the years, I got to buy pretty much the entire collection uh, I saw everything that you could possibly see and then some. So it just kept on giving over and over again. Um, I, I've, used, I used to refuse to talk about what what state or what city this was in, you know, but I know that this wasn't going to go anywhere. It was only going to get offered to me. Yeah, I made friends with the town, essentially. And uh, that's, my, that's my best deal by far. Best stories. There you go, everybody. What a, what a great story that is. Did those 352 Tops Mickey Mantles end up getting graded? Yes, and? we got um, an authentic, a one, and a three, I believe. Yep. Pretty good. Any 52 Tops Mickey Mantle is pretty good. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great story. We'll get into some more stories. Thanks for sharing that. B-Roy, thanks for the question. Let's say good evening to Jim. We got Will. We got Jeff Hart. Vintage Cards. Happy to hear Reed's buying stories. Well, that one was great. Foul Fieball, Colin Murray. Good evening, Card Shop Dad. Rita says, Rita's is a great guy. He helped me avoid a fraudster seller in the earlier part of this year. Very, very nice. Very nice. 
Canadian sports card collector. First time live as well. Love your Thank you very, very much. D. Perez says, congrats on the new opportunities. Reed, what is the big draw to stay in Buffalo? I got, I got that one. All right. <laughs> so I got this. I got this. In 2004, when I decided to move to Buffalo, it just so happens that David Adams is located here. Look, if it was located somewhere else, I still would have moved. It doesn't matter really where it was. Um, do I enjoy living here as opposed to living in Hawaii? Well, I'm a big guy. I don't like the heat. I don't like the sweat. You know, there are some good things about Buffalo, and that's one of them. You know, when it's cold, you go inside. You don't have to stand outside. I don't work outside. You know, um, and since I met my wife here in 2009, um, that's a good reason to stay. And so will I retire someday and move somewhere else? Maybe. But uh, I like Buffalo. It's, it's big enough. It's not slow. Uh, Hawaii is really slow. Some people love it. I'm not one of those people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people who talk about Buffalo and the, the, the pros and the cons, I'm perfectly fine here. I, I enjoy myself. There you go. Uh, Todd McDonald, uh, thank you very much. Appreciate the congrats. Same to you, Frankie. Thanks to you. Thanks, Toa, as well. I appreciate that. Canadian Cards, good evening. Studio Sports, thank you for the uh, support and contribution. Much appreciated. We got Purple Haze in the house. Back for another one, Jonathan Allen. Good evening. And uh, here we go. Here's a question from Mike Wick. He says, I'm going late. It hasn't been asked yet, Mike. So thank you for the question. To read, how do you find these collections to purchase? Is there a leads list that you buy or are these dealers that put the word out there? So we might need some background uh, on this one for Mike, but other people have a similar question. So the second part about that, about dealers put the word out, I definitely get referrals from other dealers who get offered collections that are just not their speed or too big. Um, I also get referrals from other collectors. Uh, it's amazing if you, if you do a good job, word spreads around. And I'd like to think that after all these years, if I sucked at my job or I was ripping people off left and right, I wouldn't be able to get these deals. But the first part about how we find collections to purchase, well, we're the largest sports car dealer in the hobby. And with that comes a, a, a huge client base um, so we get a lot of people who's like, well, I buy my cards from Dave Nams. Maybe I'd like to sell my cards to Dave Nams. So there's always that. But most importantly is we spend a lot of money on print ads. I know print ads are, aren't, aren't the biggest thing these days. But the internet is more powerful than anything that I can think of. But again, dealing with baby boomers and old school collectors, they like to read SMR. They like to read Beckett. And they like to read the Sports Collectors Digest. <clears throat> um, some of the new collectors may not have ever heard of Sports Collectors Digest, but back in the 80s and into the 90s, that was the magazine to get. It used to be like 400 pages long. 360 of them are just pages of ads. And uh, when I was in high school, if I could get my hands on a copy of that, there would be no homework done that night. It would just be pouring through that magazine. Um, and so Sports Collectors Digest is a subscription-based magazine. I think there's only like 7,000 people who still get it. But I tell you what, you call me up on the phone that says, hey, Reed, I see your ad all the time at Sports Collectors Digest. Guess what? You have my full attention. You're an old school collector. Yeah. You probably got good stuff. And so th that's how it is. I sit there and I, I wait for the phone to ring or I answer emails or, or whatever. And they, they, the leads come constantly. It's, it's never ending. A nice position to be in when the leads just come to you to buy but that's from years of, of investing in that so it makes sense true and that's also another reason why i don't want to work for myself is because if i had to generate all that stuff myself it it, it could be costly 
so working for a big company has its perks. Yeah, for sure. Steve, we talked about organizing collections in order to uh, entice you to come come look at people's collections. Steve sure says, what's the best way to organize? Is it by set, by player, by year? And I'm going to throw out there, is it really just cleaning these things up, putting all the cards the same way, have them standing up in a box? Like, Is it as simple as that, or do you want these things organized by set, player, or year? So I guess it's similar to writing a resume. You want to lead with the highlights. If you're going to have an in-depth discussion about something, it'll happen at a later date. But if you're going to entice me to, to, to show up at your house, I want to know the highlights. And that, that could take you not even a day to do, you know, as far as even if, even if you have a big collection, because if it's that big and you spent a day on it, you probably sold me right then and there, you know? So I'm looking for, again, those are the three things that I buy the most. It's just autograph marabilia, vintage cards and unopened product. If you can inventory your unopened boxes, there's a good chance that I can make you an offer sight unseen because it's unopened. You know, as long as the boxes are legit and not tampered with. If I can make you an offer on that sight unseen and we agree on that price, guess what? We already have the foundation of a deal and me showing up trying to buy the rest, there's probably a high percentage chance that we're gonna make a deal on the entire collection. If you got vintage cards or graded cards, easy to quantify too. You make a list of all your graded cards, I can do the exact same thing. Um, if you have autograph memorabilia, you kind of want to go through everything and re-familiarize yourself and just quantify things best you can. Because the more time you spend on your own collection, trying to remember all the different things that you've bought over the years, it becomes very helpful when it comes time to sell. Because when I walk into your house and I make you an offer, and believe me, it's almost always me who's making the first offer. You're going to have some number in your head that you can base it off of. If you truly don't put any thought into it and I make you an offer, I guarantee you we're not going to get a deal done because you're just going to counter offer for the sake of counter offering. And then it's just going to be a waste of time. So, yeah. you know, just if you can spend a day to quantify what you have in your collection, organize it, make it look presentable. When I get there, it saves a whole bunch of time and you'll get a better offer for sure. All right. Great. I love the, the depth of the answer. Thank you, Steve, sir. Thank you for the question. Triple V says the vintage resurgence is real and I'm happy to see it as a lifelong hobbyist, no doubt. Frank Estella, good evening to you. Triple V, appreciate the congrats on the partnership deal very much. Ian says this is what dreams are made of. I think he's talking about traveling the, the country and buying collections. We got Carvin Chung in the house, shoots a what up at you. Has to throw in that you guys have that, that Asian connection. And then for good measure, he says and what up, Jeremy, too. But I know you're here to see Reed, not me, Carv, but that's okay, buddy. That is okay. Uh, thank you very much, Terry. Appreciate that. Uh, James, I love your question. We're going to get to it a little bit later. Let's throw this one out there, though. Live With living in Buffalo, favorite spot for chicken wings, Reed, if you have one? <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a Duff's person. Uh, I honestly haven't been to Anchor Bar ever. Uh, that's probably a mistake on my part, but uh, I enjoy Duff's. I've been to uh, Elmo's and Barbell. And they're pretty good, too, but I like Duff's. Right on. There you go. Peter, uh, thank you and good evening to you. Frank's had a subscription to Sports Collectors Digest since 1977. I met the uh, the editor and, and and one of the guys from the National were at, uh, one of the guys from that worked with him on SCD were at the National uh, this past time and yep. had a nice chat with, with those fellas. They seemed like really great guys. Colin says, plenty of collections to go around, weekly buys in Canada. Joe likes the stories. And Michael says, wow, what what wows Reed when and if he sees it in the collection? See, that's a great, that's a really good question, Ham. Thanks for asking it because 
when, when you're someone who's like seen hmm. everything, what does it take to wow you now? Really? Some people, when I'm looking at their collection, they're looking at my face and looking at the reaction to see if I'm impressed. And it's not playing like a poker face. I'm not trying to like keep a straight face. So I don't like tip my hand as far as like, Oh, I really want this stuff because you know, I'd like to buy a lot of different things. It's all matters if I think the price can work and if I, if I have a plan for it. Um, so what wows me these days uh, is basically stuff that you just don't get to see. And I've seen quite a bit of it. So, you know, if you break out pre-war stuff, uh, if you break out anything, you know, pre-Bobby Orr and hockey, uh, unopened product, that kind of stuff wows me. Um, you know, modern cards, not so much, basically because I can't tell the difference between one and the other. Um, but uh, I'd say definitely older, unopened, those things really impress me. Um, it's hard to get jacked up about things because, you know, sometimes a collector only knows what's in their collection or what's in their friend's collection or what's in the store down the street. And so those are the three things that they know most about. Well, you may think that, oh, you know, this, this card is great because you, you have it, you've had it all this time and you never see it again. Um, but, you know, I conservatively can say that I've been in probably at least, I don't know, a thousand to fifteen hundred houses in my career. Dude, I've seen a lot of stuff. You know, what what's what's truly hard to get? I'll let you know. You know, the comment you just made that what we know is kind of what's in our collections, our friends' collection collection, and this the card shop in town. And that that ring that really rang true pre-internet, especially because I remember in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, you know, I grew up in Winnipeg and I I knew that the Bobby Orr rookie was like the card to get for a hockey collector. And there were maybe two in the city that I knew of. So I thought, well, that's car, that car is just impossible. When am I ever going to find one? You know, a decade or two go by and now, you know, you can find one anytime you want. And it's, 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 it's interesting how much, uh, how, how much the hobbies change just by virtue of, of the global, the, the globalness of the, uh, of our economy now. Uh, okay. Let's keep on going here. I like Jerry's question. Is there a specific sport you prefer to purchase? No, because I like to buy non-sport as well too. Um, you know, baseball is the easiest. It's the one with the with the biggest, I guess, clientele, especially with vintage cards. Um, but <coughs> running across some of the other sports, because there's so few, so little of it out there, um, that stuff I, I think would sell just as fast. I mean, I bought a deal, I think in May, and had a bunch of '50s Bowens football sets, and I just finally got around to putting it up. So I put up a 51 Bowman, no, 50, 52 Bowman small set. Uh, it's like VG condition and it sold in less than a day, you know, and I don't know why. Maybe come too cheap. Maybe someone's looking for that. You know, complete 50 sets are hard to find for anything. Um, so there's not really a real preference. Um, I think the, I think the true preference is probably the better the condition, the more I'd like to buy it. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense for sure. For sure. Mike Wick says, loving the content. Is there a rule of thumb percentage that you offer after your final valuation? For example, 60% if you valued it 100. And this was a question we were definitely going to get to, but let's, we may as well just go in the order that they're coming from the, uh, from the audience. So Mike, this question gets asked me all the time. Uh, it's probably less awkward now than it is when I'm standing there in somebody's living room. Uh, there is no general rule of thumb. <clears throat> Sorry, guys, this cough is irritating. Um, so <clears throat> there is no general rule of thumb. 
but logically, I will pay a higher percentage for items that sell quicker. So if you're going to break out a bunch of, you know, graded Mickey Mantle cards, you know, I can pay 80%. I could probably pay 85% of what they sell for because I know almost immediately the day they get listed, they're probably going to sell. But if you're going to sell me 500 single sign autograph baseballs and, and they're all, let's say they're all Hall of Famers even. You get dupes and everything and I have to spend the time to get them authenticated and then I got to spend the time to list 500 different baseballs. That's going to take a while. Well, now I'll be honest. I'm probably looking to try to triple up and it seems steep, but uh, there's no shortage of single sign autograph baseballs. <clears throat> you know, once, once, a, once a guy's been dead 20, 30 years, maybe there's a shortage. But, uh, you know, again, what do you see in your collections? What do you see out there? You know, I once bought a collection that had four dozen mantle autograph baseballs in it. You know, who, who has that kind of stuff? Well, yeah. one guy did, you know, so like I, I'd rather see, uh, believe it or not, I'd rather see like four dozen Hal Newhauser baseballs because he didn't sign as many as Mantle did. And it's a Hall of Fame pitcher and people still want to collect them to put in their Hall of Fame uh, single sign baseball collection. So um, if, a, if a collection is just too big, there's still a price to put on it. But it could get to the point where like, hey, maybe I'm going to make four or five times my money, but it's going to take a couple of years. So I got to I have to focus on turnover just as much as I, as I do on what the price is. Sometimes it doesn't work for people, but, you know, someone's got to do the work. Yeah, that, that's one of the things even, you know, I buy collections here and there as well. And you all you have to factor in not only the time you spend, but the expenses you incur to sell product. If you're just a, you know, your average collector like someone like myself and you you do buy a collection like now you might need to rent another an extra table or booth at the card show well that costs you money now you got to rent more showcases at the card show it just time is very valuable and it takes a lot of time to get through some of these things so you definitely need to be able to to have margin there to cover uh you know your time and make a profit as well makes sense to me skeppy's back says that uh, do you show up with cash when buying and how often do you run across 1932 us caramel second part U.S. caramels never. Uh, if they've been in a collection here and there, a few cards at a time. The first part is: Do I show up with cash when buying? Don't tell anybody else, but yes, I carry cash <laughs> wherever I go. Um, it's what people ask most about. Uh, it helps me buy a lot of deals because it differentiates our business from other people's businesses. Because if you want to get paid in a hundred dollar bills, U.S. or Canadian, I will make it happen. Um, do I like carrying all that cash? No, but you can be sure that once I leave your house with your collection, we're square, no waiting for a check to clear, uh, the, the bank wire thing. Well, it's only good during business hours, Monday through Friday. So there's a, there's a delay there. Um, and so yes, I carry cash. Um, it's what people ask most, I guess, most about, I would say 80% of what I buy is paid in cash. There you go, guys. There you go. And um, I'm going to ask you then, so how do you feel about your personal security? <clears throat> well, I may be a legend in this hobby, but I'm not famous. So <laughs> I'm pretty much can go around the country and no one's going to know that I'm that guy. You know, more the reason why I should never have a TV show about what I do for a living. Um, but I use common sense, you know. Like I said, I stay at hotels. 
don't stay in motels. There are no motel sixes on, on, on my itinerary. Um, I try to be as careful as I can um, where I go. Um, when I'm driving a truck, it's not like I'm going to park the truck and then I'm going to go and find some great place to eat. Nope. I stay in the room. The cast stays with me. Grubhub, Uber Eats, something like that. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it gets a little... I get a little paranoid at times, but I've been doing it for such a long time that it's not as paranoid as I probably should be. You know, my mom and my wife probably worry more than anything else. Um, yeah. But uh, that's just something that comes with the job, you know. Well, I mean, stay safe, but you, you, I'm sure you kind of, you need to be cognizant of your surroundings and, uh, you know, you're not driving around in a Dave and Adams marked van, are you? No, no. absolutely not. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Hart says, what's the rarest unopened box you've ever come across in a, in a, in a buy? Um, I've seen quite a few cool unopened boxes, but the rarest ones are the ones that didn't get the buy. Um, let's see. Uh, well, like uh, my old boss, Steve Hart, Baseball Card Exchange, he had that 52 Tops brick, which is that uh, it was like a seller wrap uh, of eight, wax packs and and the the seller um had three of them which constitutes a box i guess um so i remember taking a picture of that at his house many years ago which of course i didn't get to buy um but that same seller also had 65 tops football boxes multiple boxes uh, i took a picture of that as well too the 65 tops football boxes the tall boys that's the yeah. joe namath year i mean trying to find a pack is impossible I don't know how many boxes exist. But, you know, I think in the last 20 years, maybe a couple of them come to auction. Um, that's pretty much it. You know, I, I'd say most of the rare stuff never gets offered to me. You know, uh, we can talk about all the deals I buy and the cool stuff I buy, but at a certain level, you know, I'll say you know, for sure, $100,000 or more type of item, that person's never going to accept my offer. It's just never going to happen because there's margin involved in it and there's risk involved in it. They're going to go to the auction house because they're going to want top dollar. They may be scared that they're not going to get top dollar, but that's the best way to do it. If you call me up and say, Hey, I got, well, let's pick something really tough. You know, I got a 71 tops baseball box. I'm going to ask you how much you want. And you're going to say, I have no idea, which is a lie. You know exactly how much you want. And I'm going to tell you, you know, call an auction house because that's where you're going to get your best money. So on that, Peter has a question here, but just to summarize, like, have you ever walked away from something you really wanted because the buyer just wanted too much? And does something really stick out to you? Uh, I walk away a decent amount of time. The, 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 the misnomer in this question is that um, I want to buy something no matter how much it costs and regardless of whether or not we turn a profit. You know, I'm, Adam would like to buy cool stuff from time to time, but he doesn't want to buy cool stuff to run a museum. And so if I don't think I'm going to be able to make a profit on it or it's going to end up being a good deal, sometimes I'll just decline. I won't even make an offer. So I don't I don't think about the things that, that get away. Now, in my personal collection, maybe I think about that. But uh, if you have a killer collection, but we can't see eye to eye on price, it doesn't really bother me as much as it would if, if I was a collector and I missed on something. So I, I can definitely... Uh, draw the line between being a dealer and doing this as a business and then being a collector and having second thoughts or regrets about passing on something. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Thank you, Michael Ham, for reminding me and everybody to say, hit the like button, guys. This is great stuff. Thank you, Michael Ham. Appreciate that. And Matt says, are there any unopened cases of 86 clear basketball out there that are like undiscovered? Do you think? This is a good question because, uh, some people may know this, that over the years, I've been adamant that there are no 86 clear basketball cases. Uh, there is a time where there is a bounty on it, where myself and even Steve Hart would offer, you know, $1,000 just to see an 86 case, a sealed case. It, it, we would never disclose the person's name. We would never say where the person lived. But if you could show me a case, I'd give you $1,000. And I would never hound you about it. I just want... I would spend that for personal satisfaction and none showed up, but naturally, you know, the Fritch collection has everything. And so that's where that case came. Do I think there's other ones out there? Well, you know what? <clears throat> I've had a lot of people tell me they know somebody who has a case. A lot of people. It's like the biggest lie in the world. I don't know if we're just talking about it for conversation, but I've still yet to see one other than the Fritch case. And, uh, my old boss, Steve, made a very good point a couple years ago. The auction house over the last 20 years has never heard of a case, let alone seen one. So, like, where are they? So, no. <laughs> you well, Larry first probably got five more. <laughs> but, but I don't think there is any. Um, wow. Well, that, that's, again, that... I'd love to see one, but I'm not paying a grand anymore for it. No, that's saying a lot. A guy like you doesn't think there's any. I think that, that carries a lot of weight. Uh, Jim wants to know, do you travel to other countries to buy collections? <laughs> I travel to Canada. Um, but no, that's the frustrating part. I got a bucket list going of different things I'd like to do in my job. Uh, I crossed off Alaska several years ago. You know, I'm never going to buy a Wagner, but, you know, I've obviously bought 52 mantles. Um, but uh, I figure someday somebody in some other country, I'm thinking of you, Japan, China, someone's going to have a collection and not be able to move it there or they're going to want us to come out and buy it. So I would love to. So if you know anybody, I've got my passport ready, I'm all set. There you go. All right. So we have a couple of questions here. Ian says, what do you collect personally? And uh, Michael Ham says, what is the favorite card that you own yourself? So, yeah, we haven't really talked about what you're collecting now. Why don't we uh, spend a couple minutes uh, tell us what, you, what you're collecting and your favorite card? So as a Del Murphy fan, uh, I don't really collect Del Murphy cards because it's just not what I've been into. So um, I collect his memorabilia, essentially. And so I have game used jerseys, bats, all that kind of stuff. Uh, my, my favorite item is... Uh, the 30-30 season where Dale Murphy stole 30 bases and hit 30 home runs. I have the 30th stolen base they took out of the ground. Um, it's a long story, but I got I got, as, got about as good of the provenance of that of that base as you could possibly have. Uh, plus, uh, I, I met Dale Murphy last year. He signed at our store, and uh, we talked about it. He remembers the story exactly the way that I got the story, and I got a picture with him uh holding the base and it, it was uh it was good to to hear the the story match up with the story that i knew where the base came from um as far as cards go favorite cards uh i don't really collect cards so it's it's when i see something cool i gotta have it um so what do you, what do you think cards got, are cool cards are cool yeah, Reed. I, yeah but i see them every day so it's it's it's, it's a little different <clears throat> um 
I have a George Bush ninety, uh, the ninety tops, the uh, you know, mm-hmm. we uh, baseball car exchange, and a fine of them several years ago, and uh, I made a deal is with that, Steve. Is that a Desert Storm card? Uh, no, it's uh, nineteen ninety tops. Uh, tops made a special edition of George Bush cards that they gave to George Bush, and then the story kind of takes a turn there as far as what happened to all those cards and whether or not there are more backdoor cards. <clears throat> and so uh, we bought a, a deal of them and I made Steve a deal that uh, I could buy the last one. And so after we sold through, sold through them all, I got the last one to keep for myself. I, I paid for it, but that was, that was one for me. Um, so that's one of my favorite ones. I have the Gretzky Sportscaster. I like that card a lot. And then, uh, I don't know, it's not much else. I, like I said, any cool cards that come through, you know, the, the collections that we buy, my job is to sell to somebody else, not to keep, not to keep the good stuff for myself. Otherwise, you never have anything for sale. So biggest buyer out there in the hobby, and uh, he's got two cards, a, a president and a hockey player. I love it. Good, <laughs> good, good combo. Good, good stuff. Uh, okay. I wanted to bring up uh, this question right over here. Where did it go? Give me a second here. Ah, yes. Dexflow says, what, what's your advice on how to spot fake slabs when you're buying, uh, you know, for example, like old PSA slabs or something like that? Is this, is this something that's on your mind? And are you, are you trained in this? Do you, do you, is it, is it front of mind for you when you're looking at a, at a collection maybe of older slabs and you wonder, are these legit? It, it is, uh, more than the fake slab, I'm more concerned about a slab that's been cracked and resealed. And so, you know, when you're looking through a stack of cards and they're all uh, in those graded card sleeves, you know, whether they're the loose kind or the, or the ones that are real snug, sometimes you got to take the card out of the sleeve because when you look at it from the side, you want to see if you can see the, the spidering of the plastic cracking and somebody did a good job of cracking it clean and then gluing it back together. Now, I've seen many of those. And I once got offered a roof, uh, Gaudi roof, not too far from here, probably like an hour and a half drive from Buffalo. I got to the guy's place, looking at the roof. I took it out of the, the graded card sleeve and I looked at it and I just, I just kind of tweaked the plastic a little bit and the thing just snapped apart because the glue wasn't being held tightly or this guy never took it out of the, the, the sleeve to even know that the thing was open. And so... I'm not going to say that was his fault. I'm not going to say he was trying to scam me, but you know, clearly that that's somebody who, you know, had a, a re, I guess a resealed uh, case. Um, am I trained to look at fake slabs? I can't consciously say that I've been, I've seen a fake slab um, at, at a deal where I just knew it was bad. Um, but I have seen some that have been questionable stuff that's been sent into us and I, I pretty much sit there and I'll study the font of the of the label because a lot of the fakes they just can't duplicate the font just right and the good thing is that I can just turn to the warehouse and go find cards in holders of the same era so I know how to compare them it, it's got to be something that you consider because I mean you're also considering you're also considering fake other cards as well, counterfeit Gretzky's, Jordans, Mantles, that sort of thing. Do you ever come across the, them where someone is, is actually trying to, to get one past you? I can never assume that the person is trying to get one past me. I can assume that the person didn't know any better when they bought it. 
Yeah. So when you ask me what kind of cards I collect, I actually collect counterfeit cards. I have a nice collection going of cards that are really good that people can't normally spot. I've shown them to both my bosses over the past couple of years and they hadn't noticed until I said, Hey, look a little closer at it, you know? And then they're like, Oh yeah, I see the difference. And so the hard part about collecting counterfeit cards is to convince the person who has them to essentially give it to me because I'm not buying a counterfeit card. Um, luckily I've been able to, to get quite a bit. And so I keep these as sort of like reference material, you know, uh, I know that sounds weird because no. anyone, who has, anyone who has counterfeit cards thinking that they're going to try to push it off on somebody else. Well, I guess I've effectively taken it out of circulation. And so it's, it's good to have, it's good to look at. I have some really good ones. So some of the Jordans I have are pretty nice. I got some Aguirre's that would fool anybody. Um, and then I got really just ones that are just blurry because the, the copier that they use was bad. Um, but uh, I have to look for that as well because you can't go into a collection assuming that everyone knows what they're doing. Some people collect bad stuff and they just don't know it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. I don't think it's weird that you collect counterfeit cards. I, I also carry with me, uh, especially to shows, I have four Gretzky counterfeit cards and one Gordie Howe. And I keep them with me to educate other people, show them to people at card shows. Here's what to look for. And to make sure that I always have that reference to, uh, you know, to match up the card stocks and the print quality and all those when I'm looking at buying cards. So let's talk about that. What do you bring to a card show or what do you bring to a deal that you know you should have on you just in case? Bringing counterfeit cards is important. Um, I know guys who carry rulers because they want to measure up cards. Uh, almost everyone should carry a loop because you, you, you need to be able to inspect cards as, as best you can. The lighting isn't always good in people's houses. So you got to find a way to exactly. You got to find a way a to plus a flashlight. So I carry around a little flashlight too for that same reason. You know that and, and walking through somebody's basement sometimes they don't have the best lighting in there either. Exactly. I carry around sets of screwdrivers because we don't want to sit here and say I'm going to buy your card. Oh, but I can't open the holder. No, yeah. I got to see the card. So those are certain things that you just have to have. What about, do you carry with you, like, say, a base card from every year of Topps Baseball just to, so you can always compare to what you see? Or... I don't. No? I don't. Um, I think when it comes to the vintage stuff, it's just the feel thing. You know, if you, if, you, if you collect modern and then you're offered a bunch of older cards, how confident are you that they're legit? I mean, I bought an old judge deal once, and I didn't know the first thing about old judges – but I was afforded 24 hour head start to do all the research that I possibly could to understand what I was looking for. Uh, there's a story <clears throat> back in the early 2000s where they, they had a Pro Bowl show in Hawaii and this guy who no one ever seen before was rocking around the show offering up Cracker Jack cards. Well, it was a carnival tent situation. It was in the evening, so it was dark. You had these little lights in a carnival tent setting and he was trying to peddle these Cracker Jack cards. And I told the guy, look, my store is down the street why don't you come in on Monday and I'll take a look and I'll make an offer then. Well, he found people to sell it to throughout the show. They all sent them in to get graded. They all came back counterfeit. You know, there's, there's the, it's the right opportunity to do so, you know? And so, you know, everyone sees dollar signs, but you gotta be skeptical. You always gotta think negative and then work your way back to the positive. At least I do as a dealer. Yeah. Professional skepticism, walk in with it, but don't assume everyone is guilty uh, before right. you, you get in there. Uh, Troy wants to know, do you have a, a counterfeit 52 tops Mickey Mantle? I don't. I don't. But uh, when somebody calls up and says, I have a 52 Mantle, how do I know it's real? Usually the discussion ends after I tell them to measure it because 
when they measure it and they tell me it's two and a half by three and a half, I tell them that's not real because 52s are a larger size. Um, but uh, I think I've handled enough 52 cards to know the difference. Um, that and, you know, any nice 52 mantle isn't just going to be lying around. So it's collection ungraded, right? Uh, wax room breaks welcome to the show thank you for the hoodie i got from you at the national and uh likes doing business with david adams very very nice thank you for dropping in and then i wanted to go to a comment here from psa slab guy wants to know uh reed do you think there's any 48 bowman basketball boxes out there the george mike and rookie uh, i don't think so i mean i don't even know if there's well i'm assuming the 24 packs in the box i don't even know if there's 24 packs out there that exist I think that's, uh, you know, four, five packs maybe. And then the people who own them probably don't want to admit they have them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Here's a question from Card Porn. Welcome to the show. Card Porn says, how do you separate cards as a hobby and cards as a business? I mean, does this apply to you because you're mostly business when it comes to cards? So I've been a dealer since I've been, since I was 14 years old. Um, and the inventory is the inventory. You know, nobody wants to buy the Dale Murphy cards that I have. So I'm not too worried about that. So everything essentially is a business. If I find a cool card that I like, that I want to, that I want to buy for myself, you know, that that's, that's fine, but I'm not buying a vintage deal and telling my boss, Adam, Hey, I want to keep all the mantle eights. You know, <laughs> I want to keep all the key rookie cards, you know? So it's like, I want to keep the C3PO error, you know, I want to, I want to keep um, like the Columbus Clipper Don Mattingly, you know, something, the weird stuff, the stuff that they don't see very often. And so I'm, I'm pretty good at keeping it a business. Um, I, I don't think I've really ever had a problem, um, but that's usually the problem with people who want to open their own card shops uh, kind of face is that uh, I don't want to sell this. It's not for sale because my personal collection, just about everything I have is for sale. Um, and, and these days, that's pretty much how it is. Yeah, I, I'm going to take a stab at answering this one myself, even though I do believe card porn was directing it to you. But, you know, as someone who is a collector and a hobbyist myself, first and foremost, I do buy collections. So I like to set up a card show and sell. So and I just you can see these boxes right there. I mean, I just bought all that. That's like that. All that is filled with with modern cards. I bought those last weekend. And um, and and the beautiful part about being a collector who does some some dealing on the side is that you buy a collection, you can go through it and go shopping from your new inventory, decide what you want to keep for yourself and your own personal collection, and then the rest becomes your your show inventory. So that's how I keep it separate. And uh, once in a while, cards go back and forth between PC and inventory, but for the most part, it's really easy if you know what you collect, you collect what you like, and um, and what you don't like, you you can sell. I think that's a great way to, to separate cards as a hobby and cards as a business. Uh, okay. I wanted to ask you this. Um, the biggest collect, the most you've ever spent on a deal, the biggest collection you've ever bought, what would that be? Can you tell us the story about, uh, about it? It's a dollar amount. Uh, there's a collection just short of a million dollars. Uh, it was my first tour with David Adams. Uh, so we bought a, very well healed collector. He just stopped collecting. I think he stopped collecting after 9-11. And Adam and I were sitting at the FLIR auction in 2005, the FLIR bankruptcy auction. And Adam left to take a call from this guy. And 
he comes back in the room and says, I got a story for you. Mm-hmm. So after the auction was done, he told me, this is one of our big customers. Um, he wants to sell all his stuff. He just, you know, he's done collecting. And so this guy put away all kind of stuff. I mean, he put away singles, which I didn't get to buy until later, but he just put away boxes and cases, all kind of stuff. And so 86 flare basketball, 87 flare basketball, 88 flare basketball, multiple cases of things like 81 football, 84 football, 89 score, um, a lot of 2001 baseball, which, you know, I don't, I don't know why anyone would, would want to have bought it at the time. I guess, you know, Ichiro and Pujols are pretty hot. Um, but he bought a lot of that. A lot of the, you know, I guess higher-end stuff from the day, like SP Authentic, um, Ultimate Collection, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just mind-boggling. Guy just had this massive house, just built it like a storage area above his garage, and that's where it's just all sat. And uh, I, I remember because uh, we got to stay at his house. It was like it was like staying at a it's like not, not even like a resort. It's just it's unimaginable. And uh, it, it, we had a good time, you know. Um, bought the deal, and then I had the honor of driving it back, of course. Um, but that's the biggest deal. Um, a lot of the high end uh, boxes actually were in ended up in GAI holders when when Global used to to uh, slab boxes in their old uh, plastic holders. And so that kind of stuff is dissipated. It's buried in collections. I don't really see them anymore. I see them once in a while. Um, but that's the biggest deal dollar amount wise. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big purchase for sure. Uh, I, you know, it'd be nice to be able to buy a collection for a million dollars because when you're buying a collection for or just under a million dollars and even that that specific purchase, what kind of margin was in that deal? Do you did it? How long did it take to turn that? You know, I really don't remember the time because it was a collaborative effort between me and Adam and, and the company. And uh, I think the terms of my deal at the time I was more salary than anything else. Um, so I do know that we paid pretty strong for the basketball because that was just more marketing than anything else. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't even about trying to turn a profit on that kind of stuff. Uh, we'd approach it a lot differently today. Um, but... I think everything was gone pretty much by, by, by in 12 months, essentially, you know, um, some of that stuff wasn't, wasn't too hard to sell. It got, a lot of it got privately placed. So it never necessarily made it to the website. Right. Yeah. Tough to track on those big ones anyway. (laughs) Okay. Let's go. Here's a switching gears a little bit. Vintage card says, what is your opinion on the post pandemic price boom? Is demand from collect, is it demand from collectors or investors? So more of a, industry type question or an overall general comment but uh yeah i mean what's your take on on the what's happened to values across the board in the last 18 months so it's easy to say that the investors are the ones who are are propping up the prices um but you you have to consider the fact that a lot of collectors essentially becoming like instant millionaires in the sense that their collection has gone up so much in such a short period of time that they're cashing out and reinvesting you know, because let's let's face it, people hold cards that they don't really care for, and then when it goes up in value, it's like well, I don't really care about this. I'm going to sell it and get what I, get what I really want. And so, you know, I know people who have sold cards that um, it's just a financial windfall. You know, I know one guy, 86 Jordan, 
I think he spent like 30 grand for it, a PSA 10 way back in the day. And when the thing was going for like a couple hundred grand, he's like, I need out. He sold it, cashed out. And now he's got all this money to go back in and buy all the stuff that he really wants. You know, so if he's paying strong for the things he likes, is it really an investor coming out of nowhere to just buy whatever? Because there are investors out there who don't know what hard to get is or don't know what is a good deal. They just see it, they like it, they buy it. Um, so there's, a, I think there's a mix of, uh, of people buying. Nobody wants to be left out of the, the game, I guess. So they, they see it, they know I may not run across some of these for another, a long while, or if I wait too long, the price is gonna keep increasing. It's the, it's the fear of missing out, I guess. So uh, I think it's a mix of both. Yeah, yeah, appreciate that insight for sure. I wanna go back to your job for a minute here. There's a couple of questions that I that we haven't had a chance to, to get into yet. So the first one, the question I wanna ask you is, you know, how autonomous is your role with Dave and Adams right now. And what I mean by that is like, at what point do you need approval from somebody to spend just like, well, from Adam to spend his company's money? Uh, do you have an, an upper limit that you're allowed to just spend or, or, uh, or is it, you know, carte blanche and you just make those decisions? So because the numbers have been getting bigger, you know, just business in general or the, the price of cards, naturally the, the prices of collections have gone up. You know, I remember 10 years ago trying to buy a six figure deal. There was some thought process involved. There might have been moving money around between different accounts to make it work. And these days, you know, I'll ask for a half a million in cash and nobody bats an eye. And it's like, it'll be like, oh, you got some good deals lined up. I'm like, yeah, I do. And that's it. <laughs> so um, if I'm, a, I have, I pretty much have full say of whatever I want to do when it comes to where I want to buy, what I want to buy. And then for the most part, what I, what I choose to do with it, I don't like to hold things, but sometimes you got to hold things a little while, but selling, I have pretty much full authority. You know, um, anyone has any questions about what I do or the products that I've bought and sold, you can always contact me directly. I'm not going to hide behind it or hide behind some corporate, you know, facade. I'm always available to answer questions. And you can put me on the spot. You want to know exactly where this came from or you want the story behind something. I'm always available. If a deal starts to get to, I guess, a million dollars, I would kind of feel obligated to get Adam involved because it's a big deal. And I'm sure he's going to want to hear the plan. And um, as long as it sounds good to him, I don't, I don't anticipate any blowback because I've, I've floated some things by him of deals that are you know, way, way off in the future. But some some sellers have kind of reached out and started the process of trying to figure out who they'd like to deal with, what dollar amount we're talking about, the, the process. And sometimes I don't hear from them for like a year and then they're, they're ready. Sometimes I never hear from them again. But if they're going to have the conversation with me, the least I can do is let the company know, let Adam know, hey, I, I just heard about this. This might come to fruition. If it should, we should have a plan in place. And so, you know. We'll definitely have to get them involved when when they when they hit a million bucks. Have you ever been to a deal and you guys just couldn't afford it? Not not lately. No. <laughs> not lately, <laughs> uh, I think I think part of the, part of the reason why we get offered a lot of deals is because the average dealer. I guess you have to take the average dealer as as a, as a few years ago. The average dealer doesn't always have fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars to buy a deal, and if they do. 
they're immediately taken off the market because now they got to figure out how to, to replenish, you know, their capital. Um, we could go and I could just go on a binge and just start buying six figure deals left and right. And all Adam will care about is like, well, you know, now that you bought all this, it's time to start selling it. Um, but the, I don't, I don't anticipate there's a deal out there that we couldn't buy. Um, but should a deal get to that part where it's that expensive, like I said before, we're probably not going to get offered it in the first place. It's going to go to auction. Like Dr. Newman's collection did uh, last yeah. month or, or yeah. back in July. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I w I'm curious about this because you're out there meeting so many different people. Like you said earlier, you've probably been in into between a thousand to 1500 houses as you've been traveling the country, buying collections. Have you come across any real tough situations, any real sad stories? You know, somebody dies suddenly or, um, you know, what, what kind of estate issues do you really have? Have you come across it yeah. in your mind? Well, I definitely come across heirs who are selling off collections. Sometimes, you know, uh, there's no uh, appropriate amount of time after somebody dies that you address the different issues in their, uh, their collection. But sometimes, you know, after a couple of months, they're like, all right, we got to get going on this and figure out what to do with it. Some people wait a couple of decades, believe it or not, before selling off a collection because it's just not a, a concern of theirs. But I definitely hear a lot of a lot of difficult stories. Um, I guess one that stands out is <clears throat> I, I once bought a deal. I think this is in 2015 out of uh, Westchester County in the north of New York City. And the guy who owned the collection is still alive. He had Parkinson's and dementia. And so he was of no use in, in the negotiations or even telling me what, what was kind of there. And so I'm dealing with three generations of the family. And while the wife has total say because it's her husband and he's still alive and she can make decisions for it you know the kids one of the kids that uh was getting involved only after finding out how much money this is all really worth because honestly i was told that they're ready to bulldoze the house this house was ready to be condemned they're ready to bulldoze the house with everything in it they just didn't care and luckily the grandson said hey we might have something here let's Let's make a few calls and figure out what we can do. And so um, watching the son of the owner kind of come in and, and play his own angle was, was really tough to deal with because you're pitting family members against each other. And it, it got pretty contentious. I mean, I was asked to leave the house for a little while where they had an impromptu family meeting. And when they reemerged, the, the, the wife came up to me and said, Reed, you deal with me. You only deal with me you and I have a deal. She shook my hand and, and I'm looking around, I'm scanning who else is there. And the son was not happy. He was not happy at all because he thought, I don't know what he thought. He thought he was taken advantage of, or he felt like he didn't have a say. I'm like, your dad's still alive, dude. What, what's the deal? You know? And so it was awkward, but you know, I kind of had to put my foot down. Like, look, you, you guys can't all, you know, control the situation. You got to defer to the right person. I was trying to steer in that direction. And so I, I told the grandson who, you know, he was like 20 years old. I said, look, there's something not right about your uncle. Something's going on here. And so uh, sure enough, a year later, they, in, in the collection, there were four 82 Tosh traded cases, still factory sealed. Unbelievable. Cause I never seen one before then. <coughs> the, the house, that we were in and the cases all had the same address. So they're still stamped on the side from tops, you know, but about a year later, 
somebody noticed a, a seal case in an auction somewhere else. And we know where all those cases went. This case came from somewhere else. And so I called the grandson up. I said, take a look at this. I said, we know where all the cases are. This is something else. I said, I'm telling you, this is your uncle who took this case without anyone else knowing and decided to sell it off somewhere else. And so he's like, all right, let me go contact the family. And then, you know, I, I think I talked to the, his mom after she wanted me to explain the story again. And then we just left it at that. I've never heard about it again, but you know, once again, this is what happens when family members get involved and they start to see what kind of dollars you're talking about. All of a sudden shady stuff goes on. I wouldn't have known that case was missing. That's uh, that's, that's, that's great. That, that's gotta be tough to deal with. Very awkward when you're asked to leave the house so they can have a meeting and, uh, and coming back in to, uh, to actually make the deal. It's gotta be a bit of a strange feeling, no? It, it is, it is. Watching, watching a mother side with me over her own son is, is, is an awkward position to be in, but like even she must've known something wasn't right. Something, you know, wasn't, was, I think something was wrong with the situation, but I don't think I did anything up to that point to lead her to believe that she wasn't getting a fair deal, but that we weren't sitting there and being able to, to do our own independent research, talk about stuff. I mean, this is not one of those deals where we just walked in there and said, Hey, we'll give you this for this. I mean, it was a long involved process. And it wasn't just limited to the house. They had stuff in storage that we tried to help them out as well. I mean, the stuff in storage wasn't worth anything, but you know, we, we came there with a plan. We stuck with it. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes family members don't agree. And I try to avoid those situations. Nowadays, I always remember to ask, do you have the authority to make these decisions? Are you going to have to consult with relatives or whatever? And if there's any inconsistencies in the stories, I'll bail because there's no point in showing up somewhere where three of the four siblings agree and the fourth one thinks they know better. Right, right, yeah. I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of these situations. And and does it happen often where you are dealing with a seller who really knows very little about what they have and they're actually asking you for like a for two services or two two sort of thing? One being, what do I have here? And number two, do you want to buy it? Yes, and those are the most uncomfortable ones of all. Because while it sounds like a dream come true that I get to buy from an unknowledgeable seller, it, it, it's also the worst case. The, I mean, it's, it's the worst scenario in the sense that they don't have to believe anything you have to say, and they they really need someone to help counsel them. And so I I tell people ahead of time, look, you know, I can come to your house and make you an offer, but if you don't have a, a price in mind, how are you going to know that my number means anything? You know, yeah. some people think it's like the TV show Pawn Stars. If I come to your house and offer you 20 grand for your collection, are you going to say, I want 30 just for the sake of the negotiating? And then if I say, well, let's meet in the middle at 25 and you say, okay, after I leave, are you going to be thinking to yourself, you know, retried to take me for $5,000, you know? And so, you know, one of the future questions and then we're, we're planning to talk about was how we negotiate in a, in a deal. And look, people can say from time to time that my offers aren't fair. You know, people have accused me of just lowballing them. I was like, no, lowballing you means that I made you an offer and then came up later trying to still buy the deal. I'm a I'm a first offer, best offer kind of guy. I figure as long as I start and I leave with that, let them know that we're not on a TV show here. And if you truly don't know what you want, this is the price I'm going to offer you. We're going to work off of that. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. 
Um, so while it's like, again, well, it sounds like that having a, a collection from somebody who has no idea what they have, sounds like a dream come true. It's the exact opposite. It's, it's unnerving to have to deal with somebody who doesn't even want to take the time to try to learn a little bit about what they have. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's not that hard. You know, I always say, if you ask a friend's coworkers, you're going to find somebody who used to collect cards. They may not collect today, but that person already has more knowledge than you do. Invite them over, have them take a look. They can educate you on something. Yeah. What, what's your, what's your success rate? Like if you go, if you go on a buying trip and you're going to visit 20, 20 homes, 20 collections, are you, are you buying all 20 collections? Uh, that'd be great. I would say that if I think, if I think it's worth visiting somebody, where I've collected enough information, we've had discussions on the phone, not just trading text or emails, and there's a general understanding of how this all works. I'd say once I walk through your front door, I'm probably 85 to 90% that I'm going to buy the collection or at least buy something of the collection to make it worthwhile. If the, the 10 to 15% that doesn't happen, it's usually because somebody exaggerated, somebody outright lied, or you know, that's probably the two. I would say yeah. exaggeration, exaggeration, misrepresentation, or outright lied. Or unrealistic expectations, even perhaps. Yeah, but that's usually the kind of thing I, I get out of the way ahead Trying of time. To screen. Yeah. You screen that, you qualify that early on. Yeah. I, I ask questions over the phone, and sometimes it gets uncomfortable because I'll ask a question, and the person won't answer. They'll start talking about something else, and then I'll stop, and I'll say, look, I need an answer to this question. And then they'll avoid answering it again. Then I know either they just don't know how to respond or they're trying to avoid the question. And the, those, those calls never end up well. Yeah. Okay, good. Garrett makes the comment based on an earlier discussion we were having. He says, I think everyone is a, is a business slash hobbyist. Everyone sells trades and buys to upgrade or buy something different or better. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people do, Garrett. I will comment that uh, our guest tonight on After Hours, John Reichert, he was telling me that he's a true collector. He said, and he's been collecting his whole life. Uh, we'll talk about it later tonight on After Hours, but uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll leave that there. To You really want to have a true collector's uh, discussion. We're going to have one later on tonight, so be sure to tune into that and, and hear how he stays away from being someone who does buy and sell as well. So I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, card porn wants to know, does Damon Adams see much in the way of fake wax? Is there anything the average Joe can look out for? Uh, we see enough of it. Um, when it comes to true wax packs, um, where it's the wax wrapper, you know, it's, it's knowing what to look for is like corner folds, how the seal, uh, with a mat, with a wax gets melted over the back, um, understanding, um, uh, what the unusual wear looks like, you know, looking for creases that aren't supposed to be there in the, in the, in the wax paper. There are, there are just some obvious things, you know, we should probably do a tutorial, right? We should probably have something on the website or make a YouTube video or something where we talk about those different things. Um, I'd like to think that most people who have bad wax don't offer it to us because they, they know we know the difference, but that's not to say once again, that the person who's offering to you has no idea that it's bad. Um, the problem with bad wax or bad autographs or whatever is that someone's going to end up buying it. It's just going to keep going round and round in circles until somebody decides to destroy it and take it out of the hobby. That's the only problem there. Um, 
there are times where, or in the past, we've seen bad new wax where people re shrink wrap boxes. And uh, one time we went so far as to see not only did they re shrink wrap boxes, but they re crimped like foil packs. And it was a bad job. But, you know, I remember this. It's like 2004. I think right when I first started at David Adams, this guy sent him like $30,000 worth of resealed everything. And so we seized it. We told the guy, look, this is all resealed. We're sending it all off to Donruss and Tops and whatever. And so, you know, if, if you contacted us and wanted to sell stuff like that and the person told you that we're going to seize everything and send it off to the card companies and you knew that your stuff was legit, you would sue us. You would throw up a fit. You would you, all kind of stuff. This guy just went away. We never heard about it ever again. He just disappeared. Mm. So uh, Adam and I sat on his living room floor and opened everything, and it was it was just awful. It was awful. All the pa- all the boxes, the shrink wrap was just bad. Like we, some people say, I can't tell if a box has been rewrapped or not. These are just awful. I mean, it was like to the point where like I don't, we don't even know how the plastic was hanging on, you know, because the guy melted it so bad. And then when we got to the inside, every single pack was recrimped, and so all these foil packs had like crimp marks on top of crimp marks. Um, and so stuff still comes out there and I'd like to like to think that I catch them all, but it's hard, man, because guys get good at it. So once again, you have to start going into every single box that you look at every single deal. Like I got to start with, this is not good and work my way up to, I got to prove to myself that it's good because I get burned. I get burned once in a while. It happens to everybody. Yeah. And, you know, the second part of the question is, is there, is there anything the average Joe can look out for to determine if they're, if it's fake wax or resealed? And you have, I would think that, that you really have to hone in on what, what type of packaging are we talking about? You know, vintage wax might be, is one thing, because you're looking at, you know, these boxes and the wax paper and the way that they were, the way that they were, you know, often it was just a piece of tape to keep the box closed and they were just piled in a case box versus more modern day wax, which is going to be a completely different uh, set of, of, of things to look for. Do you have any kind of rules of thumb though for any genre or era? Um, well, the wax, I think it's pretty, pretty easy to me where it's, it comes down to the corner folds and the seals. Um, if, you, if you know what a good one looks like, when you see a bad one, it looks really obvious in my mind. With new stuff, it's the shrink wrap. It's understanding what and how the shrink wrap should feel, and when it's when it's bad, it's just not consistent with what you normally see. And of course, once again, it's good that if I'm at the office, I can just walk down the aisle and go look for boxes that are on the shelves to compare. You know, when it gets to things like cases, I mean, look, people have been trying to retake cases uh, for years. And if you don't look carefully, you can't. Sometimes you can't tell that the case has been retaped. Uh, so there's a there's a bunch of different things. A lot of it is just being like, no matter who the seller is, they could be your friend. You don't know if somebody just didn't pay enough attention when they were buying this. So you can't just take anyone's word for it. You just got to sit there and, and be a little cautious, and just look for things that just don't look right. If they don't look right, then there's a good chance that it's it's tampered with. I know your Xbox. Your ex-boss, Steve Hart, is known as being the foremost expert in the hobby on unopened product. You spent uh, nine years working with him. Did any of that rub off on you? Did, did, did you kind of uh, 
was he a mentor to you in terms of how how to identify this, or is that something he kept closer to the vest? No, we definitely uh, would sit there and, and talk about things. Uh, you know, everything that gets authenticated by Baseball Card Exchange, Steve looks at. I know that doesn't seem possible, but that's the one good thing about his company and his his service is that he actually does look at everything. And so, you know, ask turning to me or my or my former coworker Rick and asking us questions about product, it's just gathering another opinion. It's probably no different at PSA. I mean, the head grader PSA doesn't just look at it themselves and just pass it on. I'm sure they consult on stuff all the time. And so we would talk about different things to look for. We, you know, you talk about the, the different idiosyncrasies of certain products in certain years. Uh, we would definitely consult one another, especially, you know, when, when you're out in the wild and you're out looking at a deal. You know, Steve and I have gone on, on several deals together where we could sit there and do it in real time as opposed to like trying to send them pictures and trying to describe what I'm looking at. Um, again, I wasn't always right. Yeah, made, I made mistakes. Uh, it sucks to make a mistake, but um, we definitely talked about it. And, and I guess, I don't know about Steve, but I got better at it as far as what to look for, you know, understanding what, what he's seen in his career. Cause you know, whatever I've seen for I'd open, you multiply it by like a hundred and then you get the Steve, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good evening to you, Duncan Chino. Welcome to the show. Carvin says the best way to authenticate is by knowing provenance and then verifying goes on to say, also, if they owned it when it was released, of, of course, that's going to be a that's going to be a good way to 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 verify. As long as as long as you know they've owned it since it was uh, released, I mean that that could be a bit of a challenge, there, right? Some people um, will try to come up with their own story to to prove that they have this, this, and this, or whatever, and then they'll get the facts wrong. And uh, I can't obviously I, I can't say that I lived everything, so I understand it. If somebody says they got this straight from tops or straight from a store in the mid seventies. I can't disagree with them because I, w I wasn't in the hobby. I was barely born at the time, but if we're starting talking about things that I witnessed myself, especially when I worked in the store, when I own my own store or stuff that's come out since then, because I quote unquote lived it, I know exactly what we're talking about. If someone told me, Oh, you know, I got Chrome, I got 96 Chrome basketball in my, in my retail store and my, at my hobby shop, I got it straight from my distributor. I know that's a lie because it's a retail product, you know, and people, people will say things and maybe they're just misremembering, but people will say things. They'll say anything sometimes to, to add to the story that this legit, uh, they do it in autographs too, which is even worse because they, once again, they think you don't know the answer. You know, I, you just said something really key there. People misremember. And that is that, that can lead to some unfortunate situations. I, I once, uh, just going back in time, this strikes a chord with me when you said it because somebody once misremembered something and I kind of uh, said, well, okay, well, now you're a liar and and here's why and let's let's make sure that people know about it. And uh, and it was it was a simple misremembering of something and they confused two cards in their head and, you know, I, I apologized for, for, you know, blaming them or, or accusing them of really what would have been fraud. Um, and, uh, and felt pretty bad because people do sometimes misremember. So just something to keep in mind, I guess, when you're dealing with people in general, uh, Sean Rob has a question. He says, are you as excited to buy hockey and soccer as you are baseball, basketball, and football? Well, that's personal, man. <laughs> hockey. Yes. Soccer. No, uh, I don't know much about soccer cards. I don't watch soccer. I don't, I don't think much about it as a sport. That probably sounds bad, but it's true. 
Uh, so uh, if you offer me soccer cards, there's a good chance I won't buy it because it's just too new for me. And I just don't know the first thing about it. But hockey, yes. Love buying hockey, especially old hockey. It's tough to find. Is is there a good demand? Actually, Sean is the one that uh, he asked a question on the Facebook group uh, yesterday for you, basically saying that, you know, as someone who buys, out, who is out there, you are in touch with, with a lot of sellers. You're buying a lot of product. If you're buying a lot of product, you must you must have a good feel for what the public wants right now. Uh, so I'll use that to ask, how is hockey doing out there from a demand perspective compared to baseball, basketball, and football? Uh, well, hockey does well. I mean, you know, we, we sell internationally. And so I guess that maybe skews our business or our numbers because not every company or not every eBay seller is willing to ship cards or unopened internationally. Um, so from that sense, I don't think it's suffering. I think hockey is just as popular. Um, I can't remember the first part of the question now. We're talking about the fact that you you are out there buying a lot of cards. So just you're you're like, do you feel like you have your finger on the pulse of what the general public is looking to acquire right now? Uh, so no, and it, it's it's weird because I spend my time so focused on buying collections that obviously I, I know what's going to sell and what's not going to sell to a certain point, but it's not like I can tell right away whether or not something's going to sell uh, at, at a certain price. You know, if sometimes we list things and then the following day we sold A, B, and C, I'm like, all right, that was too cheap. So um, I don't know exactly what the public wants. I, I pretty much know that the public will buy just about anything if the price is right. So that's not, uh, that sounds bad, but essentially the best deals to buy for me are the ones that I know that the price is right where when we put it out there, it's going to sell quickly. Um, I know it looks great if it just sits on the website because it looks like window dressing. But honestly, some of the coolest things that we buy, most people will never see because it's gone. Uh, my old boss, Steve, look, I work for Steve for nine years. So I talk about Steve all the time. Steve and I once, uh, I bought a, a Bird Magic box, 8081 Toss Basketball box. We once listed a box on the website. <clears throat> but I remember this like it was yesterday, 12.28 p.m. on a weekday. By 12.30, someone had saw it on the website, put it in their cart, checked out, and paid for it in two minutes. So when somebody says to me, and it's it's been said to me many a time over the last couple of decades, I looked at your guys' website. You guys don't have anything cool. I was like, that's because it sells. Yeah. It sells, and it sells fast. You know, If we could stop and take a look at all the cool things that we sell, and how fast they sell. And someone's like, oh, I missed out on that. Well, yeah, you can't be on the internet 24 hours a day. You know, and maybe I should price it higher. And then we look at the museum. No, we price stuff to sell. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Victor, uh, thank you, Victor. Reminds people to hit the like button. Uh, much appreciated. And Victor, great to see you. And if you're out there on uh, in YouTube land and you want to follow Victor, the rookie card specialist, please go ahead and subscribe to his channel. It's one that I highly recommend. Um, so I want to know, Reed, a little bit about the competition in the space right now as far as buying collections go. Um, is it higher? Is there more competition now than there was pre-pandemic uh, for what you are doing? What I'm doing, no, I don't think so. Because if I dealt in new modern singles 
um, the competition is fierce because all, all these guys who've jumped in the last couple of years who are trying to make a go at it, whether it's their side hustle or they're quitting their job to become full-time dealers, you know, they're the guys who carry around the metal briefcases at the show and sell, you know, high-end BGS and PSA graded cards. Um, if I dealt in that arena, yes, there'd be strict competition. But because I guess I deal, it's more vintage stuff, more on open. I'm dealing with things that a lot of people don't want to deal with. Vintage for one is because they don't know all the players or they don't know who the customers are for that kind of stuff. Unopen, mainly just for the fact that, look, I'm a car dealer, so I can say this about ourselves, but car dealers as a whole are lazy people. Nobody wants to carry up a bunch of cases out of somebody's basement and load a truck. Um, I'm assuming I get a lot of those deals because I am willing to do that. And um, other dealers have gladly passed on those deals to me. And so I'll take them. I'll take any business I can get. So I don't think I have a lot of competition for the, the services I provide, but there are definitely a lot of dealers out there who, who are the king of their own area. They, they clean up all the deals in a certain area. I know a guy who's just a couple hours away from me out in the Syracuse area, and he seems to clean up all the local deals. And sometimes when he accumulates too much stuff, he'll call me and then sell me a bunch of stuff. And uh, I know a guy in Miami, same way. Uh, there, there are guys all over who have their own little side hustle. And sometimes they buy a deal that's just big and they want to turn it quick, then they'll call me. You know, So um, there is... There are a lot more dealers these days. That's that's for sure. What so to set yourself apart and to be really good at what you do, you must need a certain like body of knowledge and some technical information or real specific information. Uh, what what do you have in your head that the average hobbyist doesn't as a result of what you do? Hmm. Well, I consider myself an expert in on some things, but. I guess knowing a lot about everything is definitely key. Uh, I'm not very well versed in new cards, but when it comes to older stuff, you know, it's once you buy a deal of something, you become a pretty good expert on something. Uh, I remember in high school, uh, a teacher had an old collection from the 30s all the way through the 60s that he was looking to sell. And so my friend and I were able to sell his collection of consignment. Well, that's when I got my first taste of learning about batter ups and learning about 50s baseball and so i became well versed in it because i had a vested interest in learning about it right away uh, i bought a t206 set once minus the big few cards you know i bought t206s in the past but when you buy a whole set i had several days to just sit there and pour over the, everything and learn the little idiosyncrasies about rare backs and which cards are harder to get than others and so you know the more deals you buy the more education you, you i guess you kind of uh are filled with and, and it really sticks when you have money at stake. You know, if you're a collector and you're looking at stuff and you don't have any money at stake, you're not going to remember it the way you do as when it is like you need to turn a profit. You need to sell this to make a living. Um, so I think over the 30 something years I've been doing this, I've, I've you know, done a lot of bit of everything. And so I, I'm, I'm fairly well versed in a lot of different areas that it makes me you know dangerous enough. You know. Yeah, yeah. Here's a question. I want to get Craig's question here. Do you think this is a personal opinion question, but you do, you know, you're talking to so many people. So do you think vintage will underperform modern over the next 10 to 15 years as boomers pass away and people chase the new stars that they grew up with and get older themselves? 
I think parts of the vintage market will. Um, so the, the, a really bad term in, in, in the card industry is a marginal Hall of Famer. You're a Hall of Famer. There's nothing marginal about you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offend some people here. But there are players like Brooks Robinson, you know, Al Kaline. They're fan favorites. People who follow those teams back in the day love them. I don't know too many people who say, I collect Brooks Robinson. I don't know a lot of people who say, I collect Al Kaline. And so in 10 or 15 years, who's going to be buying those cards? Brooks Robinson, rookie, different story. You know, rookie Hall of Fame card. But I don't know who's going to say, look, I really want a really nice 1960 tops Brooks Robinson unless they're trying to make a set. So there are definitely some things that I think over the next couple of decades will, will kind of fade away. You know, right now we're having a resurgence on, on the newer stuff, our age. You know, there's a resurgence in Dwight Gooden and Jose Canseco cards. Why? <laughs> you know, it's because we all remember them <coughs> as our childhood heroes. And so it's nice to see those cards go up in price, but it has nothing to do with their, you know, their careers, I guess, because neither of those guys are going to ever make the Hall of Fame. You know, so um, I wish I could tell you I knew exactly what stuff was going to go up and what stuff wasn't going to. But I do believe that there's there are certain parts of the vintage market that won't carry over. A good example is stamp collecting. Do you know anyone who collects stamps these days? The average age of a collector of stamps is like 70 I do though, Reed. The paralegal in my office, she collects stamps. I give her whenever I get a, a card in from wherever outside of the of the country, um, I, I cut it out and give it to her. So okay. I do know one person, but that that's rare. I know. <coughs> Stamp collecting has gone by the wayside, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, with all the cards, all the vintage cards, you know, certain ones are always going to sell. Clemente, Aaron, Ted Williams, you know, but some guys just won't won't do so well. I picked out a couple names, but there's probably a lot more we can throw in there as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. A couple of comments here. Uh, Footloose Ottawa says, I've been buying from David Adams for years. Fantastic customer service. I can't wait for the land border to open up again. No doubt. And Carvin, nice comment for you here, Reed. No one works harder than Reed in the business to, to source, to source product. Also, Reed's best talent. This is honesty, transparency, et cetera. Always about the relationships. That is Reed's strength. Wow, Carvin, you're... It's like I paid him to say all this stuff. I know, I know. <laughs> I'll take a cut, Reed. I'll take a cut. Um, so here, here's a question for you. you. You know, you've been doing this so long and, you know, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but you have all this talent, all this knowledge, all these contacts. Would you ever consider doing it for yourself now? Well... Probably not. I mean, a couple of years ago, before I got hired back at David Adams, that was the, that was the plan. That was a strong consideration. Um, I don't like dealing with the back end of the business. It's just not for me. But having done it before, um, and you know, the, the the positive out of this pandemic, and you know, once again, I don't know why this hobby um, profited from the pandemic, um, but it's also change a lot of things. I mean, my financial plan in life looks a lot better. You know, it was always pretty good, but it looks really good now. I mean, I'm to the point where like, I can, I can see retirement. I know what that looks like. It doesn't mean I'm going to retire. I love what I do. I don't know if I'm ever going to stop doing this, but to, to go out on my own and do this by myself or have my own company, 
I just I just don't feel like I, I want to. I mean, I, I think I have a pretty good uh, deal at the M&Ms. And as everyone keeps telling me, I have the best job in the hobby. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, if Adam's watching, I'm not, it's not like I'm trying to get Reed to leave or anything. I'm just, uh, you know, just kind of, cause I think a lot of people would, would wonder that. And, uh, but your answer is perfect. So appreciate that. Joe Pro says loving the relaxed vibe tonight. Yep. Same here. Thank you, Joe. And cardboard hat cardboard has this question. Any thoughts about the value of sealed wax relative to the cards you can pull from them? For example, a box of 86 clear basketball sells for 250,000, but you're unlikely to get a PSA 10 Jordan out of that box. I've actually oh, yeah. thought about, yeah. And, and Reed, I've thought about this myself, you know, an open product to me, the, a lot of the value is based on what you might pull, not what you're going to pull or not what, what you're, what not, not what the uh, expected return is going to be. That's so, a lot of the value. And that may have applied 15, 20 years ago. But these days, it's you're, you're you're paying for the scarcity of the item itself. You know there are not a lot of legit '86 flare basketball boxes, and so while you think one thing has to give, either the price of the box has to come down to to be able to support what PSA tens go for, or the price of PSA tens have to shoot up to to match the box price. Eventually, we all have to admit that the the price of unopened has to be worth more than what's inside. Otherwise, we'd all open it. You know, if I knew that I could open an 86 floor basketball box and get all 10s, I would do it all day long. And then I could just sit at home and just grade cards, you know. Um, so there's, it's like an unscratched lottery ticket, you know. You, no matter if you keep scratching lottery tickets, eventually you're going to have a negative return. But every once in a while you get lucky. And so just it, it gets brought up quite a bit. Um, but People just have to remember that the price of an unopened box or case or whatever like that has to do with product scarcity more than what you can get inside. You know, there are some there are some products you just can't find. And, you know, when you see them for sale, it's like a ridiculous pressure. Like, well, you can't pull anything good in there. doesn't matter. You know, a good example, and this is personal, 98 SP Authentic Football. I've been watching that thing for the past couple of years. How many boxes do you think come up on eBay? They don't come up very often. And when they do sell, I don't know if they're legit sell prices, right? So I found a case last month. We have a case on the website right now. Try find another case. Yeah. Try and find 12 boxes. You know, and is that case going to sell? I don't even know if it's going to sell. I'd like to think it will. I'd like to think I priced it correctly. But that's just a hard product to get. And if you land a Manning 10 and a Moss 10 and a Woodson 10, you're still not going to make the, the cost of, it, of the case. Yeah. Yeah, well, so Bobby Burrell says wax has certainly exceeded the value of the cards. However, the intrinsic aspect of sealed wax goes beyond the pulls. I agree with that. I, I have a, a run of uh, Opeachy hockey from 1970 through 89 with all the various series read and the WHA packs as well. And people always say, why don't you open those? How do you not open them? Well, I, I don't have them to open them. I have them because I like the relic that is the unopened pack. I like the I like the wrapper. I like the the evolution of the art over the the 20 year period to me that is the item i'm collecting not what might be inside those packs people who can't resist opening packs should never open card shops that's <laughs> pretty much what it is <laughs> for sure okay dude i mean i can't believe it we're at the hour 53 mark this has this feels like it's like we've been on for half an hour to me this has been a really enjoyable discussion but we have to we have to wind this up in the next couple of minutes 
I feel like we could keep going. We might have to bring you back in the future for a follow-up uh, to continue the discussion. I know that sure. the chat has certainly enjoyed it. We've had strong viewership the whole way through. So um, I do want to thank everybody who has joined us tonight uh, so far. Reminder that in about seven minutes, uh, I will be coming back with John Reichard. He is a true collector. So the as Joe Perot said, the relaxed vibe of the evening is going to continue uh, into after hours. Uh, he is a super collector, a Wade Boggs super collector, a YouTuber. Uh, I'm looking forward to that discussion with John. I know it's going to be really just relaxing and fun. Uh, I just want to remind everybody, or let everybody know again, I know people come and go throughout these episodes. And um, if you weren't here earlier, I did make a couple of what I think are pretty cool announcements. Uh, so Reed, hold, sorry, just hang tight while I, while I get through this. But a uh, couple of cool announcements for uh, for myself and Sports Cards Live, everybody. One is that I have um, been contracted by Collectible, the the fractional ownership company. These guys right here, and uh, I'm going to be hosting a new show on their channel called Collectible Live, and that is going to start tomorrow night. Is going to be the first episode. We're going to do it every Sunday. Planning for it to be a 20 to 30 minute show. I know that's going to be really challenging for me to keep it below 30 minutes, but uh, we'll do our best. So I invite everybody to come check that out, subscribe to the Collectible YouTube channel and uh, see what I am up to over there. And then the other uh, announcement I have is is uh, that we're going to be working with Whatnot, Whatnot, the live streaming app. I've just put them up on the ticker right now, uh, download their app and all the different, all you know, Apple and uh, wherever you download your apps from, whatnot.com. Uh, I had on the CEO from Whatnot, Grant LaFontaine, just about a month or so ago. We had a great chat, really like what these guys are doing. And um, so we decided we're going to do some collaborating. So check out uh, Whatnot and stay tuned for what that collaboration is going to look like. But a couple of really things I'm really excited about both of these. So um, yeah, I want to, uh, we're going to run through some final comments here, Reed, then we'll go to you for your final comments, but, uh, Vintage, thank you very much for the comment. Mike Zier, great to have you. Steve Foley, great to see you. Thanks so much. Says congrats. I love it. Triple V. Thank you so much. Reed, let's, uh, let's wrap it up, man. Um, again, thank you to you for coming on. This has been excellent, Reed. Yeah. And, uh, the chat was definitely very, uh, interesting what you had to say. Uh, to the point where there were there were periods where we weren't getting any comments, they were so engrossed in what you were you were talking about. And to uh, to thanks to Dave and Adams for sharing the fact that you were going to come on. And to anyone who's new to the channel, by virtue of Reed and Dave and Adams, I welcome you to Sports Cards Live and uh, ask you to subscribe to the channel. And we hope to see you later. But uh, back over to you, Reed, for your your final comments, and we're going to wrap this up. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I know there are a bunch of things that we wanted to talk about that we didn't get to. Uh, if you ever want me to have be back on again, look, I'm probably going to be in some hotel room on a buying trip on a Saturday night with nothing to do. I, I could I could crank out a couple more hours easily on this. So I know, yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I, I had a great time chatting with you. We will do it again. So uh, I appreciate it. I know you're out there busy. I know. I know. Even to nail you down for a time, you you basically gave me the option of one night over a two month period, and we we got you for tonight. So thanks for making the time. Really appreciate everybody else. We'll be back in about three or four minutes with John Reichard, Wade Boggs fan, super collector. It's going to be a lot of fun. I love all, all the people out there who are basically laughing at me about the collectible live staying under 30 minutes. I know it's going to be tough. I'm going to do my best. 
Appreciate everybody. Read, hang tight right there. We'll be back in a few minutes, everybody. Thanks for joining. We'll see you again soon.